Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome back to New York, and welcome back to Belabored. Episode 16 of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast this week. Oh my goodness, how have we made it for 16 episodes? Well, long-time 16-week listeners will know we open each week with a quick roundup of some headlines we've been following over the past week. This week, there is a series of protests, including a hunger strike in D.C., all oriented towards a demand for a suspension of deportations. Of particular interest to me is that one of the hunger strikers is Antonio Vanegas, someone who I've written about, an activist who worked in the Ronald Reagan Federal Building, a building that includes federal workers who work on immigration. He worked for three years in the food court, said that he never had any issue with his legal status up until the moment at which he became an activist with a campaign backed by the Service Employees International Union called Good Jobs Nation, demanding higher labor standards for federal contracting. Venegas both was fired ostensibly for not preparing a certain sauce quickly enough and also was detained just a few days after going on strike by a division of Homeland Security He was put in immigration detention for four days, and now he faces a court proceeding next month. So this is an issue I wrote about last week at Reuters. It's an under-discussed angle of immigration reform, the question of to what extent will it or won't it protect workers' ability to stand up together on the job without having their immigration status used as a weapon against them. Employers' ability to wield workers' immigration status as a weapon is something that's pressing down wages, not just for immigrants, but for workers across the board in the United States. So this is a set of actions we'll be watching. So um, in some ways connected to this same campaign Josh was just talking about, I was in Chicago this weekend, um, and while I was in Chicago, I met an organizer with the Fight for 15 campaign who had just come from a Dunkin' Donuts where workers had been working all day without air conditioning. It was 99 degrees out. The little app on my phone that tells me what it quote-unquote feels like outside said it was like 107. Workers who had been working all day with no air conditioning finally got fed up and went on strike. Um, The next day, the same thing happened at a McDonald's here in New York. Um, Josh wrote about this for Salon. And Mike Elk wrote about this for In These Times and pointed out that there is no... Rule. There is no Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, um, rule to protect workers against heat stroke. There's no rule that says you can't force people to work in 99 degree heat. So instead, as I said, we had some workers go on strike here in New York at a McDonald's. We had workers go on strike in Chicago at a Dunkin' Donuts. These were, you know, as we say, uh, spontaneous actions, but they were taken to protest working conditions. Um, These are workers who were involved in the Fast Food Forward campaign here in New York and the Fight for 15 campaign in Chicago, which, as we've mentioned, are also um, both backed by the Service Employees International Union. So in addition to the sort of one-day strikes that we've seen um, that are coordinated across the cities, now we're seeing workers take spontaneous action in response to 
I believe in this case, literally hellish working conditions. Um, so, and we're hearing now that the workers here in New York are going to undertake a strike vote for to see if there's going to be another citywide strike soon. So um, we will probably have more on this soon. Signs point to yes. <laughs> this week at The Nation, I wrote about the Teamsters and the Change to Win Federation's effort to transform the port trucking industry. This is a story that Sarah has written about it in these times. One of the things I find interesting about it is this is a case where you're talking about workers who face what you could call the who's the boss problem. Most workers in this industry who carry freight from ports to all the major chains where you buy the stuff, most of these workers are classified as independent contractors. They have, as we've talked about on this podcast before, nearly all the downsides of having a boss. They don't decide how much they get paid for each thing they do. They don't decide when they work or where they work. But they lack some of the basic rights that are supposed to go with having a boss, like being able to organize collectively and demand union recognition. So this is an interesting campaign in that we see a combination of political, legal, and organizing efforts that are designed to be mutually reinforcing. So in 2011, you had workers go on strike and literally drive from the job that they were refusing to work at the Port of Seattle to the state state assembly where they started demanding a bill to do something about this misclassification. You have now a small group of workers who have the right to unionize to go through a labor board process doing it and in so doing strengthening the case for changing the set of laws that prevent other workers from doing that in the industry you have a whole battery of legal claims that are being brought against port trucking companies that are designed in part to soften the earth to force some of these companies to change their business model so that they then could also organize in turn when more workers organize in the legal sense and become legal employees and legal union members, that then strengthens the case for other workers to be given the right to do the same. So Josh has some good news. Um, I'm about to depress you again. What? I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Also, while I was in Chicago this week, um, we got the news that 2,113 employees in Chicago's public schools will be laid off. Um, That is 1,036 teachers and 1,077 support staff, which amounts to, by the way, about 4% of Chicago public schools faculty. Long-time listeners of our podcast will know that our first guest, Karen Lewis, um, the, the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, the Chicago Teachers Union has been leading the fight to keep the schools open. They had a successful strike last fall. And so this is the latest salvo from Mayor Rahm Emanuel, Democratic Mayor Rahm Emanuel, in the ongoing battle about who is going to be in control of Chicago's public schools. Um, Of course, the layoffs are blamed on funding, um, blamed specifically on pensions, because blaming it on pensions is a common thread that we will return to later in today's podcast. But the city is also more than doubling its commitment to Teach for America, bringing in up to maybe 300 or so new inexperienced teacher recruits who often come from elite universities and are turned loose in quote-unquote inner-city schools. 
And it should be noted that Teacher America's whole reason for being is this idea that there is a teacher shortage in these schools, and if we just bring in really smart kids from fresh out of college with new ideas, that'll help these schools turn around. Laying off a thousand and some odd experienced teachers who want those jobs in these schools really puts the lie to that entire justification for existence and really shows you what Teach for America is actually about, which is helping to bust unions and infusing, once again, this neoliberal mindset of individual meritocracy that if we just have really smart young teachers, it'll it'll fix everything. Um, one of the teachers, um, Jeanne Barrett, who is a national award winner, a member of CORE, the caucus within the teachers' union that took over and led the strike, He was featured on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times the day after the layoffs because he got the news that he was being laid off, not at his home, but through a voicemail message that CPS left with his mother, who is his emergency contact. It's just sort of telling, once again, how much the city does not value the people who teach its children. And as I have quoted Molly Neffel saying on this podcast several times before, and I will say again, the way we treat the people who take care of vulnerable populations shows what we think of the people that they take care of. In this case, what we think of Chicago Public Schools' children. So on that lovely, cheerful note, we're going to turn to another lovely, cheerful story. Um, Last week, the city of Detroit, Michigan's emergency manager, Kevin Orr, who is a bankruptcy lawyer, filed for bankruptcy on behalf of the city government, making it the largest city government in the country ever to declare bankruptcy. The bankruptcy is on hold right now, as a state judge has ruled that the bankruptcy will violate the state constitution because it is clearly going to take a bite out of workers' pensions, which are protected by the state. But Kevin Orr and Governor Republican Governor Rick Snyder, um, also known for pushing the right-to-work bill last year, um, are determined to go forward. We have, as our guest today, to explain all of this to us, um, Marcy Wheeler. She's a blogger at EmptyWheel.net. You may know her best for her work on national security, but she also writes about industrialization, about jobs, about the economy, about the role of banks in screwing up the economy, and many other things. So we're very happy to have Marcy with us today. So Marcy, to start with, what's the status right now of this bankruptcy filing? Do you expect, despite this judge's ruling, that we'll see it go forward? Yeah, it probably will. Um, I mean, partly because Michigan's courts stink, and so ultimately, even if it were appealed, I think it would go forward. And I just think the Michigan state government can make a sufficiently compelling claim to, to move forward. That's my guess, though. I, I've seen people argue both sides of it. Yeah. So Detroit is the biggest city in Michigan to have one of these hellish emergency managers appointed. Um, but the emergency managers in other cities have clearly gone after union contracts. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this emergency manager provision and how it's used to specifically target workers' contracts and pensions? Right. So um, Michigan started doing emergency managers in 1984, which is tellingly during the Reagan era when Michigan's suburban white working class voters 
were called Reagan Democrats. Um, and, and it's important to understand because it was put into place under Democrats and it was put into place as a, as a means to deal with um, the rising financial troubles of cities, which by and large in Michigan, certainly the ones that have been emergency managed, with maybe three exceptions, have all been majority black. Right. So since its beginning, the emergency manager thing was largely about making sure that primarily black cities don't get to rely on the state to fix their woes that were caused at that point largely by white flight and since then has been exacerbated by globalization and by the deindustrialization of these cities. So that's the background. Um, and then in 2011, Rick Snyder made it all worse by increasing the authority of emergency managers such that they could just get rid of the elected government in these cities. And since then, he's increased the number of cities that have been put under these emergency manager rules, almost to the point of absurdity. I mean, there are actually finally now two cities, uh, one of them Allen Park, one of them, importantly, Hamtramck, which is kind of in the middle of Detroit, and which there was an article floating around the other day about putting up 12-foot walls to make sure the evil people in Detroit didn't come in. Um, Now that white cities are being subjected to emergency manager, in addition to what happened with the referendum last year, I think people are really going to begin turning against this, depending on what happens with this bankruptcy in Detroit. Basically what's happening, I mean, with the emergency powers, the emergency managers got the power to void contracts, and they've been using them to void contracts with union employees, predominantly um, cops and firefighters and city employees. So that's what they've been doing. People can weigh in on both sides of whether bankruptcy for Detroit is the only answer or the best answer. And I, you know, I can respect both sides of them. But there are a number of details about the way Snyder imposed the emergency manager on Detroit, which makes it suspect. Um, Starting with the timing, he put it through just... So voters last November basically overturned his version of the emergency manager law, um, his expanded version of it. And then in the um, lame duck session last winter, they passed it through again with a few more protections, but but substantially the same law that uh, Snyder had put through. And then he kind of put through the Detroit emergency manager thing as soon as humanly possible. He violated the state's open records law by talking to Kevin Orr beforehand, um, by picking Kevin Orr before they even purportedly decided to do an emergency manager. Um, and recent FOIA Uh, disclosures have shown that even Dave Bing, the ostensible mayor of Detroit, although he's completely powerless at this point, even Dave Bing was brought in on the loop. So this was all planned in a way that doesn't comply with the state's laws. And there are challenges to the emergency manager thing underlying the bankruptcy. I mean, one of the things that Orr and Snyder both claim they want to do is bring the city through bankruptcy by, say, August of next year, August, September of next year. Clearly, that's time to the gubernatorial race. Right. You know, so Snyder's on the ballot next year. Right now, everyone 
thinks it is a tie race between him and Mark Schauer, who um, was a congressman, but before that was the Senate minority leader and, and I think really bridges the Democratic coalition really well. So one of the things Snyder's trying to do is pull off this bankruptcy in time to save his gubernatorial career. Interesting. Speaking of Snyder, long before this so-called right-to-work law passed, you wrote a very thorough critique of a New York Times piece that had positioned Rick Snyder as a kinder, friendlier, more moderate Republican governor, as a contrasting figure to someone like Scott Walker. And you talked about the aspects of his record that cast Rick Snyder on labor rights and Rick Snyder on voting rights in a different light from what was suggested in that Times profile. So what is it that you think the national media have missed about Snyder and about the Republican Party in Michigan? Yeah, I'm so old. I remember when the national media thought Snyder was a moderate. Um, (laughs) You know, I think that changed with the right to work law. But um, Snyder, he's from Ann Arbor. He's a business person. He um, at least ran on supporting a woman's right to choose. And so for those reasons, the national media never put him in the same category as the Scott Walkers. But he is still fundamentally a corporatist. And so one of the first things he did was to start taxing pensions to give businesses a tax cut. Right. Um, he's actually defunded education at a time when it's more critical than ever in Michigan. So there's a number of things. He's also pushing this state school district, which largely means putting the the Detroit school district into state hands. And it's been crazy. I mean, it has been, you know, of course, he's backing the whole charter thing, which in Michigan is not strongly enough regulated. We've had a ton of charters already removed because they basically are just warehousing children. And this state district, if you will, was basically filtering money from the Detroit public schools because they needed the money, they said, to to run the state district. And then, of course, they're going to turn around and say that the Detroit public schools are failing and then privatize them. And so, you know, the new version of, oh, Governor Snyder is a moderate, is, oh, Governor Snyder has Detroit's best interest in mind when he's pushing through this bankruptcy. And if you look at what he's doing just with education alone in Detroit, Um, Because he's literally rolling out a lot of what he's rolling out supports the warehousing of children as a profit center. And there's actually Highland Park, which is part of Metro Detroit. It's one of these these uh, suburbs that are, you know, part of the deindustrializing area that we call Detroit. The ACLU is actually suing uh, on the behalf of a bunch of kids because they're not being taught and through FOIA, they, they were able to get records that the school knew they weren't teaching the kids. So in other words, the, the you know, these school districts that Governor Snyder has championed are basically just warehousing these children. And so when you talk about turning Detroit around, yet at the same time you're warehousing the next generation of Detroiters, there's no way to make that work. There's just no way without improving education and without turning schools, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in Chicago along with a really fighting union there of using schools as community centers to as this kind of the anchor of rebuilding these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And instead we're privatizing and spinning them out and warehousing a lot of children who, you know, will continue to be a draw on society then. But he has Detroit's best interest at heart, my God. Um, 
So I was reading yesterday. Oh, and one other thing I want to add about that. The other disclosure, which is really interesting, is is questions of a secret bonus program for Kevin Orr, for the emergency manager that they were discussing. And it's not clear what the status of it is, but it was going to be corporate funded. So if you've got a BK lawyer, right, who is being paid by the state a fair amount of money, but at the same time expects he may get a bonus if certain things happen and he's being paid by corporate entities, what's going to happen? I mean, where where is his interest? I, you know, I think Kevin Orr came in with good intentions and he actually, again, these, these recent emails showed yesterday that he, before he was named, the emergency manager said, why can't we just put... Detroit into bankruptcy now with an elected mayor head. And that's really, I mean, if you had Detroit's best interests in mind, that's what you would have done. I mean, even according to Republican ideology, there is no way that Kevin Orr is more qualified to bring Detroit through bankruptcy than Dave Bing, who's a successful businessman, but who was elected by voters is or or was, because Bing is now completely powerless. Um, And so the fact that we brought in a BK lawyer who now is reportedly trying to find out about governance, you know, he's not an expert on that, but he's going to try and fix Detroit's governance as part of this BK. Um, It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I was reading um, the other day this piece from Bloomberg from March that says the only winners in the financial crisis that brought Detroit to the brink of state takeover are Wall Street bankers who reaped more than $474 million from a city too poor to keep streetlights working. And of course, when you go through bankruptcy, these banks demand to be paid first and they don't take that much of a cut and they demand pension reform, um, which means getting the city's debt that it owes to its workers instead. Um, Can you talk about debt in Detroit and why the bankers always manage to get paid off first? Well, and there's there's one other part of that story, which is is equally important. One of the big players there is J.P. Morgan. Well, Detroit, because of predatory lending and because of the foreclosure crisis, and of course it hit Detroit earlier than it hit the rest of the country, there are a huge number of zombie homes in Detroit. So in other words, banks who have told a resident of a home that they've been foreclosed on claim that they haven't taken ownership of the house. So when you, you know, one of the, one of the memes is, well, none of Detroit's residents pay taxes. And even Kevin Orr's documents say, we're not sure who has title on all these homes that we're calling blight that are vacant, that aren't paying taxes. And there's very good reason. I mean, the biggest area of bank walkaways in the country back in 2011 was was to Detroit zip code. So, mm-hmm. you know, a big part of what's going on is that the banks own these houses but aren't paying taxes on them. So, you know, so Chase got rich on the front end by foreclosing on people, getting the insurance, but not paying taxes on the houses they own, and got rich in the interim with these very exotic deals to keep Detroit afloat for the last several years. And yet, or is sort of saying that bondholders may be dumped in the same group as pension owners. And he's claiming that all of them, and this is crazy, he's going to take 90% of the debt on all of them. So in other words, pensioners will get 10 cents on the dollar of their pension. And already the average pension cost in, De- in, in Detroit, uh, it was reported today, is $19,000 a year. And 30000 for cops right. who don't get Social Security. Right. So you're taking what are sort of middle-class people, retirees, and dumping them into poverty along with the rest of Detroit, and that's supposed to fix it. 
and ultimately, yeah, you know, Bing on the Sunday show says, well, the federal government could bail out Detroit's pension and that would alleviate something like $3 billion of the debt. And Snyder is aggressively saying, no, don't do that. And again, this shows where Snyder's goals are. If you are aggressively refusing the possibility that the pension benefit guarantee company, that the federal government could bail out these pension funds, you're basically saying my goal is to break the pension. My goal is to impoverish this group of retirees in the name of making Detroit solvent. And that's that's the other thing that's missing from this equation. Like I said, I mean, if you're going to dump a new group of people into poverty in the name of turning Detroit around, how is it ever going to get the quote-unquote tax base to turn around? How is it going to get sustainable over the next decade? And and that's what's been missing from this, this bankruptcy discussion. Yeah. How should we see the relationship between this bankruptcy and the auto industry, the ostensible auto rescue? Steve Ratner had an op-ed in The Times comparing Detroit to the car companies and saying that automakers could shed workers without problems and that there's a parallel. What's your reaction when you hear connections like that being drawn in that way? I think people are making it too closely. GM is still headquartered down in Detroit. The Wren Center is still one of the signature buildings right there downtown. Um, So GM is still there, but most of the good jobs had left Detroit long before this recent turn in Detroit's fortunes in in the auto industry's fortune. So in other words, when they say that um, there's a tie between the auto bailout and Detroit, one of the things people are ignoring is that what got saved is jobs in Lake Orion, which is, you know, a, a suburb. What got saved are jobs in Lordstown, Ohio. What got saved, what got added, um, because Obama, you know, I think he gets far too little credit for the battery factories that he invested in, most of those are in Michigan, but most of those, I mean, like there's three of them in West Michigan, if I'm counting right, at least two, you know, so the investment that got put in as part of the auto bailout, by and large, got put into the white suburbs. A lot of the investment got put into areas with weaker unionization. And so the federal government spent a ton of money investing in Michigan, and, and I'm grateful for that, but very little of that went to Detroit because the auto industry had already moved out the working class jobs out of Detroit. And so, I mean, and, and the closest big investment that I can think of to Detroit, you know, GE kind of said, oh, we're bringing this tech center to Michigan as part of our commitment to American jobs. And that's, if I'm remembering correctly, in Wayne, which is, again, a white suburb west of Detroit. And that's as close as you get. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, yes, both went bankrupt. The auto industry, or at least two out of three of the auto industry, and Detroit went bankrupt. Both were trying and beginning to do the things to turn around. I mean, I think Dave Bing had a contentious plan to fix the same things that the bankruptcy is supposed to fix, especially kind of consolidating services in the same way that GM was already had already turned around a lot of its product problems. But I think the parallel ends there. A, because nobody is talking about doing with the Detroit bankruptcy what they did with the auto bankruptcy, which is really putting the auto companies on a path to success. I don't see any real vision of this bankruptcy that puts Detroit on 
a path to success. And frankly, I worry that the way the bankruptcy will be put through is going to end up reverse. I mean, Detroit is one of those cities where it's, you know, urban is cool again, and Detroit is still the biggest city in Michigan. And it does have some really dynamic pockets. And, uh, you know, who knows whether this bankruptcy is going to let those dynamic pockets flourish or whether it's going to exacerbate the problems of the very poor in Detroit and therefore exacerbate the problems of Detroit. But I just don't see a plan that says we're going to fix Detroit. So you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago the possibility of um, a federal bailout for the pension funds. What do you think the odds are of any federal action to quote unquote save Detroit? And then you've written some really lovely pieces before about sort of the language of, of saving Detroit versus Detroit saving itself. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that as well. Zero. I mean, I don't think, I think there's zero chance that the federal government is going to bail out Detroit. And I think it's partly because the narrative has been allowed, you know, Democrats have never turned against the emergency manager provision. When emergency managers in Michigan first started getting a lot of attention, most of the ones in place at that point were appointed by Jennifer Granholm. And so until Democrats start addressing the fact that they embraced emergency managers decades ago because it allowed them to avoid antagonizing white working class people that they hadn't lost. And and I think Michigan, I think Michiganders are at the point where race isn't, I mean, with the exception of some notoriously segregated cities, um, I don't think, and and this this Hamtramck idea that they're going to put up wells, I don't think race is driving everything in Michigan the way it once was. And I think that parts of Michigan have started saying we're going to sink or swim together. I mean, there was a really interesting referendum last November where the three counties surrounding Detroit, so Detroit is in Wayne County, which also includes a ton of working-class suburbs. Mm -hmm. And then there's Macomb, which is also largely working-class suburbs. There's a lot of factories up there. And then there's Oakland, which is easily the wealthiest place in the state. And basically, they voted to increase their own taxes to support DIA, to Detroit Institute of the Arts. And so there's, you know, there's been this big discussion in the bankruptcy about whether or not the artworks at DIA would be sold off, mm-hmm. and very little awareness that in one of the first moves to regionalize Detroit's gems, the rich people in Michigan said, okay, let's tax ourselves to support you know, these great artworks that are in Detroit and that we largely go in to use. And so I think Michigan is almost ready to have this discussion about sinking or swimming together, regardless of what color people are. But I think the way the political parties work, that's still not going to happen. I mean, Rick Snyder, to be elected, is still going to have to feed the race baiters in his party, whether or not he's actually a racist, right? And he certainly is still going to win or lose a state race in Oakland County in this affluent suburb of Detroit. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I think is going on, even while people are realizing that that cities are cool and we want to keep them. And I also think, I mean, one of the other things about the bankruptcy is, yes, Detroit is way too spread out. And Detroit, you know, it, it needs to consolidate services because Right now it's offering everyone substandard services. Mm -hmm. But I think 
I mean, I think increasingly people realize the way, and actually Paul Krugman had an interesting piece about this yesterday, the, the way you revitalize cities is not to kind of um, turn the downtown center into a gem and let the, re the rest turn into fields or into these kind of weird agricultural products that are going to take profits out of the city anyway, yeah. which is one of the things that's been floated. It's to revitalize neighborhoods. And I think um, there's been too little focus on finding a way to revitalize these pockets at the same time as keeping the core safe or keeping the core, you know, services to the core delivered. Can you talk a little bit about that language around sort of saving Detroit and what and bailing out Detroit and the way the country has sort of started to look at Detroit as this place that is either a blight or a constant victim in need of saving? Yeah, um, I have to repeat this because I think it's crazy. Do you know the Joe Louis fist? It's this iconic statue right downtown in, in Detroit. It yeah. was in the um, Chrysler Super Bowl ad a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, in some of the coverage in, in, in the Detroit News, which is the conservative newspaper for Detroit, some suburbanites are going, oh, that's a black power fist. This is why we should just blow Detroit off, because their iconic statue is, is, a black, is a black power symbol. And it's not. It's Joe Lewis's fist. Like, it's a champion. And instead, they've re reimagined it as, as this image of defiant black power, defiant black, you know, self-interest. And what is going on is that Detroit is really the symptom of American life, right? We no longer invest in our industry. Um, we're letting globalization gut the things we used to do very well. We have embraced an unsustainable lifestyle. We are increasingly asking the, the poorest and the most marginalized to suck up and deal the biggest part of the hurt in these issues. We're increasingly stratified. And, to you know, I said the other day that Detroit's kind of the canary in the coal, coal mine for the American way of life. And yet there's been very – and with the, Jonathan Chait had a thing today where he talked about um, how Detroit is sort of the image of our past. But – that there's been very little discussion about um, whether it's in fact the image of our future. And, you know, aside from kind of munic municipal bond people who say, well, once Detroit goes under, you're going to see municipal bonds under a lot of stress. And I think a lot more cities, Buffalo is one that always gets cited, mm -hmm. a lot more cities are going to be facing the same kind of financial difficulties as Detroit. Is this just the first of a very large domino? That may be the case. But the point is that until the United States figures out a way to reindustrialize, until it finds a way to reverse the kind of emptying out of our economy that has been driven in large part through globalization, then, then really I think Detroit is the, a very frightening canary in the coal mine because there, you know, you're not you're not investing in the next generation. You're not. You, what what Obama did with the battery jobs here in here in Michigan, but not Detroit, was provide one killer app. You know, he said, "Here's battery technology. The Koreans are great at it. We need to be great at it. We're going to dump some money um, in a very short term, you know, short sighted approach into having that killer app." And that's almost the only time that 
our government has done something like that in decades, you know, outside of the context of the military industrial complex. So the only thing our country will invest in superiority is something that serves a military purpose. And we're not saying, how are we, the United States, going to be able to compete with Germany or Korea or China or what have you in the future, and where can we invest to become superb as a country again? We're instead saying the private and you know the private market will solve everything. We can privatize everything the government does, which is what Snyder's doing with the schools, and save money. And you know we're we're beginning to figure out that that actually doesn't work at all because you have to account for profit, and there's you know without incredibly strong regulation, which kind of defeats the purpose. But I think what Detroit should be in the national conversation is a conversation about what happens when you allow your country to deindustrialize. Will the rest of the country be as bad off as Detroit? Parts of it absolutely, and parts of it already are. But rather than having a conversation about what you do to save a bunch of people who've been really devastated by the combined effects of racism and globalization, we're instead saying, how can we cut our losses? And we really need, as a country, to think about whether the proper solution to our future is saying, how can we cut our losses? Check out Marcy's outstanding blogging at emptywheel.net. We'll also link to some of her work on the website. As we approach the sad end, of episode 16 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. Long-time listeners, well, this is when we say, "Arg! I wish I had written that. Sarah, this week, if you had to wash your clothes, but you had no detergent, or indeed soap of any kind, and all that you could wash your clothes in were the pure refreshing layers of your jealousy about a piece of writing that someone else had created, what would that piece of writing be that you would use instead of soap? <laughs> I would clean, I would cleanse everything with Madeline Schwartz's review of Nancy Fraser's book, Fortunes of Feminism, in the current print issue of Descent Magazine. Um, the piece is called Kicking Back, Not Leaning In, because apparently we cannot get anywhere these days without a reference to Sheryl Sandberg, but the piece is about how Sheryl Sandberg is wrong. Um, it is about much, much more than that. Nancy Fraser um, has a critique of the what she calls a dangerous liaison between feminism and neoliberalism, and she wants to challenge that. And Madeline Schwartz situates this in the context of recent conversations that we've been having about feminism and work, about quote-unquote work-family balance among questions of a politics of pleasure, of a politics of being against work that we've talked about before on this podcast. And you perhaps, long-time listeners, will perhaps know that I have an affinity for such arguments. Schwartz, quoting Fraser, points out that the focus on individual achievement in the workplace that feminism currently often has fits very well with neoliberal sort of individualism. And the drive by white middle-class women into the workplace to find fulfillment 
became often a convenient excuse to drive what had been family-sustaining wages down. Schwartz makes a call for a movement that is not just about balancing wage labor and the family, but actually allows for women to have time and space beyond either kind of work. She has a wonderful line, time, her work suggests, is a feminist issue. And I think that is true. I think we, when we talk about work, we need to talk about space beyond work and the right not only to have better conditions in the workplace, but to actually have some space and time away from the workplace to have a life. So I very much recommend you read this piece. It is in the current print issue of Descent Magazine. It is also available on the website. Um, We will link it on our podcast page on the Descent website. We got some news in the past week about the Obama administration's desired goalposts in terms of reform of labor rights in Bangladesh. For context, last week Mike Elk had an excellent piece of reporting called Will Bangladesh Get Off the Hook on Safety Improvements for In These Times? It's a story with a number of striking quotes, including a less-than-specific response from a deputy assistant secretary in the State Department's South and Central Asian Affairs Bureau, also a quote from Congressman George Miller in which he says that he worries about State Department involvement because, in his words, they're into everybody looking good when the agreement's done. You know, we met, we conferred, we had a frank discussion, yada, yada, yada. It also features Bangladesh's ambassador to the United States arguing that the New York Times is overly interested in Bangladesh and spends too much time covering Bangladesh. It's an important piece of conduct text in this ongoing debate over the role of government and the role of other actors in transforming the situation that we've seen lead to so many deaths. Meanwhile, we hope that over the next week you will... Tweet at us at Descent Mag, use the belabored hashtag, suggest to us some stories, suggest things you'd like us to explain. Also, for a big picture look at Chicago, please check out the summer's issue of Descent Magazine, which along with the review that Sarah mentioned, includes our interview from the very first podcast with Karen Lewis. And please stay cool. Definitely stay cool. And if your workplace happens to make you work in 99 degree temperatures, um, we might know some people you can talk to about that. Thanks for joining us, and we will be back next week. See you then. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I, hell no, we can't go.